0: Ich nenne mal ein Beispiel: uh, Kaffeebohnen aus Westafrika. Millionen von Kindern müssen dort arbeiten. Warum? Weil wir die Importeure von Kaffeebohnen keinen fairen Preis bezahlen für das Grundprodukt.
1: So, let me translate that. I will take an example: that of coffee beans from West Africa. Millions of children must work there. Why? Because we, the importers of coffee beans, do not pay a fair price for the basic product. What you heard was the voice of Gerd Müller, Germany's federal minister for economic cooperation and development and a member of the Christian social union, a Bavarian political party from the Christian Democrat and conservative tradition in German politics. He was speaking to K.A.B. Deutschland, the Christian workers' movement of Germany. In December, 2019, Along with the federal labor minister, Hubertus Heil, Mueller announced his intention to push forward with a supply chain law. Six months later, the broad plan behind such a law was being discussed in the German press. It would require companies that are based in Germany and have more than 500 employees to analyze whether their activities have a potential or actual adverse effect on some internationally recognized human rights as well as a comprehensive risk analysis the companies would be expected to take adequate prevention measures and provide access to remedies such a law would mean a step forward from the united nations guiding principles on business and human rights or the UNGP's, which is a non-binding instrument consisting of 31 principles on the issue of human rights and transnational corporations and other business enterprises companies should identify prevent and address human rights and environmental misconduct in their supply chains and report publicly about their efforts. Discussions in Germany on a binding law to meet human rights standards had been accelerated after a survey of over 5,500 large German companies showed that voluntary commitments had brought little improvement. On November 29th, around the time that I was recording this introduction to this podcast, people in the neighboring country of Switzerland the voting on a referendum to determine whether swiss companies should be required under law to introduce human rights and environmental safeguards to their global business practices
0: Das Kilo Kaffee in Bonn oder Berlin kostet 8 bis 10 € im Einkauf und die Menschen vor Ort bekommen für die Bohnen als Rohprodukt 50 Cent davon können sie nicht leben Das ist eine Lieferkette oder Schokolade jetzt zu Weihnachten ganze 3% Wenn Sie für Euro kaufen, Cent bei arbeiten.
1: You can buy, Müller says, a kilo of coffee in bon or Berlin, for eight to ten euros. But the people who produce the raw material receive only fifty cents. This is just one supply chain. Similarly for chocolate. For each Euro spent on a bar of chocolate. Only 3 cents go to the farmers of cocoa. And that is why millions of children must work. Welcome to the Nagrik Podcast. I am Aju John, and on this podcast, we learn together to become better at participating in public life. The term supply chain describes the people and activities involved in the production of a good or service and its supply, distribution, and after sales activities. Very often, these activities are coordinated across national borders. To stay with Mueller's example, the major participants in the supply chain for a bar of chocolate include the producers of cocoa bean, the marketers of cocoa bean, the people who process cocoa bean the people who manufacture chocolate and the retailers who sell the chocolate in various forms to the final consumer. The multinational corporations that built these supply chains in search of cheap labor and globalized economies of scale are the most powerful actors in these supply chains. Known as lead firms, they are often buyers such as retail chains and the sellers of branded products such as clothing, footwear and food. In the clothing, textiles, and footwear industries, the supply chain links the studios that design garments, the sources of raw materials such as cotton farmers, with factories where those materials are woven into fabric or other raw textile material, factories where these materials are then cut and sewn into garments, and the distribution network by which the clothes are delivered to consumers. The districts of western Tamil Nadu, including Tiripur, are an important node in the global supply chain for t-shirts, nightwear, children's clothes, and sportswear. Some factories in this region produce yarn to supply garment manufacturers in India and abroad. Other factories supply assembled garments to nearly all the global fashion retailers like Zara, H&M, and Uniqlo. Around 2011, reports emerged internationally of a system of exploitative employment of young women in the spinning and garment units of this region. It was called the Sumangali Scheme. The first voice that you will now hear belongs to Karpuswami, the founder of the Rights Education and Development Centre, an NGO working with spinning and garment workers in Western Tamil Nadu. The second voice is that of Rakesh Supkar, the business head of Tradecraft India, which helps businesses establish sustainable, fair, and inclusive supply chains.
2: Uh, Sumangali scheme, uh, they started uh, near uh, 2000, Uh, initially they started in 2000, uh, some of the suppliers but general worker, general public, they thought this is a government scheme, something government, government is formed, government is announced as a scheme, but it is not announced by uh, government, it is by the suppliers, by the suppliers. So, Somangali means Indian context, uh, uh, as a women women side, they want to pay dowry.
0: You have uh, young adolescent girls, often below 18 years of age, who come uh, come in and work as, uh, you know, uh, uh, as workers in garment industry, uh, often with the aim that they would work for a period of three to four years. Uh, without any pay in the intervening period, so that at the end of that period of engagement, uh, as, as they become uh, in a way ready uh, for marriage purpose, they would have earned enough or saved enough to to afford their parents a, a dowry for for making sure that they you know helping out with the marriage purpose.
2: They'll not ma- recruiting male worker, only female worker, overall, unmarried worker, unmarried worker, maximum age is below 20 below 20 maximum they age they are recruiting below 20 they are not uh, recruiting above 20 even uh, married women also okay, they will not recruiting so they they have to work uh, 3 years uh, even after 3 years they are going to pay lump sum amount for their marriage they can settle their dowry so that is their uh, agreement but agreement is not uh, agreement that's a oral agreement oral agreement uh, that's just their discussion they, uh, they, 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 they during recruitment they will not give any appointment letter any contract thing even contract they should mention all the points contract should mention all the points there is no mentioning uh, point even there uh, they, even holidays and other things they're not uh, following per well law uh, but in between what happened within one year and one and a half a year, or they when they are going to complete the second year uh, they make it uh, find out uh, false finding false finding on the women work there they send back to their uh, their their own village for example uh, they are giving uh, overtime extra overtime scolding will they will start after one and a half year two year then they will worker will not comfortable once they go back to holiday they will not come back so so, they, therefore, they don't want to pay this, uh, the scheme money to uh, women. So, therefore, this money will be savings for the suppliers.
0: Now, what does that essentially mean is that you have very large number of adolescent girls working pretty much like bonded labor in textile units uh, in, uh, across Tamil Nadu. Uh, without any pay without any freedom of movement they are often accommodated by the uh, by the manufacturers in uh, you know uh, in in hostel facilities uh, managed by the uh, manufacturers you know packed you know, 6 to 7 girls into a room you know, and with very strict curfew condition and things like that they you know in, in a way uh, from an indian perspective or, or from a manufacturer's perspective they look at it as uh, something that they are doing uh, almost like a support service to to these girls. The, the fact that you know they are helping them find employment, uh, helping them save a fortune for paying for their dowry, and uh, pro, you know keeping these you know restriction of movement for the girls, you know provide in in, in these hostel uh, kind of conditions, is considered as a service that the Uh, The employer is providing to the girl, whereas in in reality, what it actually means is that the girls have simply no freedom of employment. They have no bargaining power for their wages. Uh, There is no computation of whether they are even earning minimum wages or not. And in in in, in practice, they are really not earning any wages through this period. They will only get a uh, you know bulk amount at the end of the period. All of these expenses related to their food, their accommodation is determined by the employer and is deducted from the the so-called ways that they are supposed to pay uh, pay them so in, in, the, in the final accounting. And on top of that, uh, there is no accounting of the number of hours that they work, uh, you know, uh, uh, they could work uh, uh, exceeding of the minimum requirement or, or the 8 hours shift, they could work for 10, 12, 14 hours without any question of, uh, you know, uh, 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 additional wages for those hours. And then on top of that, it has emerged. That a lot of these girls who are uh, who are put in this hostile accommodation situation are also uh, abused, abused, uh, you know, by the uh, by the supervisors and the shop floor, by by the uh, you know people in the supply chain, and often there are issues related to both physical and sexual abuse of of many of these girls.
1: Further down the supply chain from the factories in western Tamil Nadu lies the agricultural production of cotton. A number of other human rights violations have been observed in cotton production in India and around the world. Friedel Hoots-Adams, a researcher of agricultural supply chains at the Swedwind Institute in Bonn, can tell us more.
3: If we look into the, uh, the production chain, it depends from country to country. Of course, the, the, the mechanized big farms in, in the United States, they they, they pay decent wages to, to most of the workers there. Uh, but... Um, and there's a lot of uh, subsidies in, in in the sector in the United States, but in, in, in other countries um, most of the cotton production is done by, by, by families who do uh, small-scale uh, farming. Many of these are very poor. Um, they usually uh, in Africa, for example, I've seen studies that they usually produce not only cotton, but three, four, five different crops. Uh all of these uh, in these dry areas, where usually cotton grows best, um, they uh, they have very low income. The same is true for for, for Indian producers. I think in China, there are more subsidies around the sector. Um, if you hire uh, additional laborers, again, poor people pay low wages to laborers. So, on these uh, small farms, uh, wages are not high if they need additional labor. If you go into the generies, a lot of these uh, only work seasonal after the harvest. So, there are a lot of problems, Uh, like a colleague of mine, she did a study uh, together with partners in India and they found very low wages in the generies. A lot of women working there under harsh conditions uh, for, for very low money. If you go down further the line of uh, cotton production um, it depends on the step you are in Uh, like uh, when you weave um, most of that is nowadays done by uh, modern machineries so it might be that even in developing countries wages are um, bad but not as bad as they are in the agricultural sector the garment industry you have uh, the competition the global competition on lowest wages Uh, the companies are moving from one country to the next already some 25 years ago i heard uh, the joke about the ideal garment factory the ideal garment garment factory a few hundred uh, machines on 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 a ship and you go with a ship into the harbor of a country with uh, the lowest wages and the highest oppression of, uh, of unions. So um, here for the German market, for example, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of things were made in China. Nowadays, you see much more Bangladesh, Cambodia. So companies left China when the uh, wages were increasing. Um, Perhaps presently, uh, one of the fastest growing spots for uh, garment production also shoes is Ethiopia, which has wages, uh, average wages, which are even much lower than these in, uh, in Bangladesh. Um, last year, I, I was uh, on research for coffee in Ethiopia and uh, they showed me a huge new garment factory and they said, well, this is run by people from Bangladesh. So um, in the garment sector, uh, where you need semi-skilled laborers for most of the work, uh, there's a huge pressure on on, on wages.
1: As Friedel said, many countries compete with each other to achieve economic development by exporting the same or similar products. They compete over the cost of land, infrastructure subsidies, wage and employment flexibility, and by avoiding trade unions. They even establish export processing zones where tax holidays, weak labor laws, and weak inspection provisions will apply. Suppliers from these countries also have fewer options. They have to compete globally to be a part of these supply chains. In such a buyer's market, lead firms have the power to set lower production prices for their products and shorter lead times to make and ship these products. This also reflects in the wages paid to the workers.
3: Well, a, a, a problem concerning labor all along the value chain is um, that um, there is presently no law um, no, for global value chains on paying living income and living wages. Uh, in the agricultural sector where we have self-employed farmers, uh, we have to talk about a living income and there are campaigns uh, in different agricultural sectors saying um, that prices should have a level that farmers can live from their work this was already written in uh, uh, the declaration on human rights by the united nations in in 1948 that that people should be able to live from from their work but um, still prices for cotton and for many other products are dictated by the world market and if there is a high supply and the price goes down and goes down to a level uh, with which farmers can survive, can feed their families, uh, there is no way for them to to fight for their right uh, on an income uh, which allows them uh, to to earn enough for the bare existence. Um, the um, different campaigns on uh, on um, living income um, are challenging the industry. Um, in many countries um, campaigns are fighting for, for laws so that companies uh, have to uh, have a due diligence on human rights and that would mean that you can't pay a price for a farmer where he starts from. The same is true with wage laborers. Presently, um, the the industry goes into countries with uh, often with the lowest labor costs. And uh, if you have um, wage increases in one country, uh, they may leave it. So there is a competition on uh, on lowest wages in the garment industry. And um, there is no due diligence concerning a living income, a living wage. Um, a family, um, workers should be able to feed their family by uh, what they do. But this is not a criteria presently uh, on, uh, on, on wages and the risk for a country is if they increase the minimum wage and try to, uh, to um, protect their workers that the industry just goes to the next country without this protection and uh, this is a very dangerous development um, because what might happen is that uh, you have improvements in one country higher wages uh, better safety measures for for workers and so on and uh, what happens afterwards is that the garment industry um, collapses because um, the industry goes to buy some wells uh, you have a race to the bottom now since, uh, since 30 years since uh, the end of a cold war and the opening of the markets in china and india and other countries for the, for the global market um, this brings governments into a, a very difficult position if you have a country for example like ethiopia uh, with hundreds of million uh, dollars of investments now in the in the garment sector and the government who wants to attract investors they know exactly that investors will only come um, if the wages stay low. At the same time the government is discussing um, a a minimum wage. There is presently no minimum wage in Ethiopia and unions and NGOs and some people in the government they want a minimum wage which is uh, a living wage. And But there are others who say if you imp- implement a living wage, you have invested so much into your uh, industry parks to attract investors. They will not come and set up factories because Cambodia or other countries might be cheaper.
1: My name is Aju John and you're listening to the Nagrik Podcast. Nagrik Podcasts are available on nearly all podcasting platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. They are a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project to reduce inequality in access to knowledge about the law, public institutions, and civic participation. Right now, on www.nagriklearning.com, that is N-A-G-R-I-K-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G.com, you can learn about the rights of workers in supply chains from videos and other materials prepared with support from Oxfam. Before this break, Friedel Hoods Adams was explaining to us how even marginal improvements in wages and other conditions of work can be undercut by corporate decisions to source raw materials or other products elsewhere. The brunt of the exploitation on these globalized supply chains is often faced by workers who are also otherwise marginalized. In very few places is this more evident than in the tea plantations of Assam, which produce tea for consumption all around the world. Rakesh Subkar will tell us more.
0: Uh, Often, uh, and very similarly, I think if I could uh, share about the the tea space, again, I think the the violation of the rights of... uh, uh, workers uh, in, involved in, you know, tea plucking in, in a state like Assam for example, where typically these uh, workers belong to, uh, to Adivasi community and, 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 and not Adivasi community native to Assam, but rather it was, you know, whatever about 150 or 200 years back when the British planters were starting up the tea plantations in, uh, in, in Assam. They they were in need of or they were short supply of labor and they actually pretty much forcibly migrated people from central Indian Adivasi communities to go and settle down in these tea gardens in Assam and and become tea workers. Uh, uh, What that has done is that, uh, uh, you know, these these communities have been uprooted from their, their own land, they have been forcefully resettled in these remote alien places. And uh, in the Assamese uh, mainstream, they are still, till now they are looked at as an outsider because they come from, uh, from, uh, from Central Indian tribal groups, they are not ethnic Assamese, so to say, and, uh, and they, they still now do not have any rights. Now, if you, if you belong to uh, this tea working community in a tea garden in Assam, it becomes uh, absolutely essential for someone in your family to continue to be to work in a tea garden because the homestead land that has been provided to you in the tea garden is provided to you in lieu of your you know someone in your family being a tea worker hence you have been assigned a living space now if no one in your family uh, is working in the tea garden the tea garden management authorities are well within their rights to Throw you out from, or withdraw the housing scheme for you. You you, are, you are get you get thrown out from your, uh, from this community, and you don't have a village to go back to. You had left your native village two hundred years back. Uh, you are no longer, uh, and there is no no way you can trace yourself back to the native village in Jharkhand or Chhattisgarh. From where you know your forefathers had migrated. So you really don't have a place to go to. So and and. Uh, so, hence, it becomes almost like a bondage again that you know you are, you are forced to to work in the tea garden, uh, despite the poor working conditions, the associated uh, occupational health and risk, or whatever physical or mental abuse that goes around in the garden, or uh, you know excessive work or poor pay. It is no longer a choice for you. You need to continue to work in the tea garden so that your family can can still stay in the garden, uh, in in the homestead provided by the garden authorities. And and in such a situation, also the garden management then assumes uh, a lot of additional responsibility on behalf of these workers, uh, that is including, uh, you know, access to various government schemes, any any government uh, program or any extension workers from government schemes, or even the police authorities, if there is a law and order situation in these garden communities, in, in order to access the garden, the worker community inside the tea garden, actually have to take a no objection certificate from the garden management to be able to enter there and, and provide you the health service, education service or, or regular services. So again, your access to basic services mandated by the government of India gets moderated by your employer. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, if you, are not in uh, the best relationship with your employer, those services or access to those services could be withdrawn, uh, which is again a form of human rights abuse. Now, uh, uh, and and this is not something new. It has been existing for uh, many decades now.
1: While production processes may span several countries, liability of employers under most laws and international conventions stop at the borders of each individual country. Local supplying companies, whether they are garment units in Tirupur or tea plantations in Assam, are unlikely to face accountability because administrative or judicial processes are too slow, weak or corrupt. At the same time, the lead firms, whether they are fashion retailers in the Netherlands or British tea brands, are usually immune from any legal accountability since there is no cause of action or jurisdiction over them in either the host country or the home country
0: i think india does have very good laws when it comes to either child labor you know, prevention or in the case of plantations like in the tea gardens you know there is the plantation labor act which is fairly progressive in its intent uh, and what really ails is the ability to to enforce uh, enforce those uh, legislation uh, and also uh, the uh, and then the intent itself, in terms of so while, while there is a law, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the states actually benefit quite a bit, uh, especially from a product supply chain that is export market linked. Uh, so the growth in that industry actually, you know, gives rise to the revenues to the state, you know, various taxes and measures and things like that. So state is actually a direct beneficiary of the flourishing trade. So if Uh, and and taking corrective actions against human rights abuse somehow uh, is seen in India as being anti-business you know uh, and and often that is cited as the reason why uh, in a way you know Kerala uh, while being such a leading state in terms of human development index does not have much industrialization that you know it just took uh, the the state governments Uh, or the labor unions took too much of corrective action to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody complied to the law. So, you know, lower cost uh, manufacturing from neighboring states like Tamil Nadu could flood, come and flood the market and Kerala manufacturers cannot survive. So, almost, it's almost seen like, you know, uh, the right uh, uh, or or, or enforcing of labor rights, enforcing of, uh, you know, human rights in supply chain is almost seen as, uh, you know, colluding with uh, left liberals to drive up the cost and make our industry uh, uh, uncompetitive. So somewhere there is this intent of uh, of uh, colluding with the business to ensure that the practices continue to 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 flourish uh, is somewhere in the mind of uh, of the enforcing authorities. And and of course, as you also rightly said, the. The limited state capacity to uh, to really be able to enforce the the law, like you know, uh, there would be a district labor officer with a very small team, and for uh, for such a person to be able to uh, to go and inspect uh, across hundreds of factories that are that would be operating uh, in a, in a small. Uh, uh, hub like say you know take Erode in Tamil Nadu, in a small town like Erode you will have more than 100, 200 factories operating, Uh, each will have uh, several challenges related to environmental laws and social laws and child labour and various other uh, things that uh, uh, you know violation and and it just becomes very very difficult for for then um, uh, the state authorities to be able to really track, manage, take corrective action and ensure compliance across all those factories so it becomes easy to avoid uh, for uh, for the manufacturers so yes limited state capacity is definitely a challenge but i i do also feel uh, the the intent to enforce and uh, really give the same value to the to the human rights of of the poor and downtrodden versus uh, the 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 ease uh, the, the priority that is being given to the ease of doing business or make a business more competitive uh, you know somewhere there is a uh, uh, there is a, it is seen like a competitive space like you know you know giving focus on one would reduce the competitiveness of the business uh, and and that becomes a issue uh, that that prevents or that constrains a state uh, states ability as well as willingness to take action
1: labor laws and voluntary corporate codes were ineffective in resisting the pressures of global supply chains. Labor unions too had become weak during the decades of globalization. Rakesh also came across a low appetite in India for consumer-led activism to limit human rights concerns in supply chains.
0: Uh, and and what, uh, what one has really seen is that uh, somehow the the, the consumer consciousness or awareness about these kind of rights abuse or the, the failure of social compliances by leading brands uh, has not yet become a major, uh, you know, purchasing decision or it is not a driver of purchasing decision of, of consumers in India as yet. Uh, people still uh, kind of value for, uh, you know, uh, the, the best quality product at the lowest possible price, uh, you know, the, the cost of that low price in terms of uh, rights violence and for people in, involved with in the supply chain is somehow not a factor that Indian consumers have, uh, you know, have uh, have factored in uh, often uh, in my own experience of working in the sustainability space I have seen, uh, you know, the consumers, the, uh, the the mainstream consumers, the upper middle class consumers do value uh, kind of the health risks or, or the environmental sustainability as an issue that they, that is clearly recognized as as something that they value so if a product is kind of uh, 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 marketed as an organic product as a green product it can command certain amount of market premium or our consumer is willing to pay an extra uh, uh, extra amount to, to to buy that but uh, the issue of social compliance if a product is trying to you know market itself or a seller is trying to sell their produce with the promise that you know this has been produced uh, fairly without the involvement of child labour by paying fair wages to the uh, to various employees and everything and hence this product is costing you know 2% extra than the competitive uh, product, I, I do not see the Indian consumers will be willing to pay that extra price for, for the purpose of social compliance of that product
1: to help us understand how this campaign on business and human rights was taken to the doorsteps of the lead firms in global supply chains. I spoke to Michael Futurer of Transnationals Information Exchange, or TIE, which works to develop international cooperation among workers and their organizations in various parts of the world.
4: So there was a huge, or oh, there, there were campaigns about um, these kinds of violations of labor rights, human rights, workers' rights and i think partly they developed um out of the relative weakness of the trade unions in the uh, producing countries like beaten for example in the garment industry where i mean you I, i'm sure you know it from from india where there was like the garment and textile industry in bombay in the 80s and then it was like destroyed and then Export-oriented garment industry developed over the period of the nineties, early two thousands, and it was very difficult to unionize, or still is very difficult to unionize, and you have similar, similar situation in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh, in Southeast Asian countries, where there was an, where there is still anti-union laws, export processing zones, very repressive regimes against the independent unionization of workers, and. I think out of this relative weakness um, of the trade union movement, these campaigns emerged and in the beginning um, they were not only about like addressing labour rights violations but also like to cooperate with these trade unions in order to strengthen them and to build their bargaining power on the
0: ground. Uh, 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 uh the 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 issue of business and human rights and violation of rights really started, uh, you know, accelerating, uh through the nineties and and over the last, you know, three decades, really, uh, the issue of uh, human rights violation have really, uh, 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 uh have really come to the fore, uh, and and this in a way coincided with both a rapidly globalizing world that allowed. Uh, a lot of international buyers to to shift their manufacturing to countries like china you know, vietnam cambodia bangladesh india uh, where the cost of manufacturing was cheap so they could really use cheap labor and and lower uh, lower uh, uh, benchmark on, uh, on 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 working conditions to leverage that into cost uh, you know uh, in, into lower cost of production and, and, and reach out to the market but also these uh, kind of unique evolution of uh, what we know as the fast fashion brands uh, which was also kind of driven by the the growth in the TV industry and then then the the, the middle class consumers who uh, you know uh, who would have this aspiration for wearing, you know the fast fashion clothes uh, based on you know specific uh, worn by some actress in a tv show or, or in a movie and there were brands who started then specializing on bringing really shortening the time frame from the design stage to the time when the 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 clothes would actually be sold in, in the high streets in state in, in places like new york london and all uh, you know from a period of few months to a matter of you know two to three weeks and and that really drove the pressure of shortening the time frame for you know designing manufacturing uh, shortening the cost and then these uh, these clothing items could then be manufactured at a very large scale and available in supermarkets at a relatively low price which then makes in you know, a way high-end fashion material available uh, at a relatively low price to, uh, to a mass, you know, and, and converting that into a mass conjunction market uh, space, so to say, uh, and, and, and this evolution in the fashion marketing coincided with a globalizing world with a lot of outsourcing of manufacturing uh, and then taking advantage of lax labor laws uh, and then that le- really accelerated the violation of human rights. Uh, in, in, in the garment supply chain uh, through the 90s and 2000, and which, which kind of continues. Now, uh, as these, uh, this trend started in the 90s, I think the first people who obviously experienced it are the people who are engaged in these production chains, like the laborers themselves, the workers themselves. And and the first actors who actually started voicing out their discomfort, voicing out their their problems with this kind of rights violation were the workers themselves. Uh, you know, you had uh, you know workers' union, uh, you know, voicing some of these concerns right from the late 90s. Uh, of course, very quickly uh, the the these businesses. Uh, uh, incorporated some of the more traditional trade unions, uh, into their fold in 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 terms of uh, you know, uh, both in terms of uh, reducing their ability to function or basically reducing, uh, you know, freedom freedom of uh, collectivization, freedom of association in those trends by by uh, by policies like special economic zone where trade unions could be banned, uh, or in those places where trade unions were. Uh, available co-opting the the trade union leaders into you know uh, through various means so that you know they do not voice out or they do not really cite the interest of the workers rather they are in the pockets of the uh, of the businesses and things like that. Uh, That led to actually then uh, you know formation of this kind of informal workers association which started uh, voicing issues of uh, of rights, uh, uh, rights violation or abuse. Uh, And often uh, this led to uh, either, uh, you know, uh, growth of a civil society organization emerging from the community groups. So you had, you know, uh, uh, for example, informal workers coming together into associations, which led to say formation of uh, a a CSO like, you know. uh, 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 you know, in uh, places like Seva flourished in uh, Seva or you know have uh, uh, you know organizations like Save in Tirupur that comes to my mind as organization that really grew from the community of the workers who associated themselves and then organized themselves into a civil society organization. Uh, the civil society organization or the CSO space allowed for uh, for these organizations to really then start collaborating with uh, uh, other stakeholders other market players uh, including with uh, donor organizations um, uh, human rights organizations based in the west and, and, and starting to leverage those councils whereas the the traditional kind of form of uh, 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 of protest through the trade unions and all would would, would in a way could would uh, take predict predictable path uh, in 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 highlighting the issues and which allowed uh, often the brands and the businesses to predict uh, you know what is the escalation path and then, then start. Uh, start blocking those pathways so to say. So, you know um, uh, like, like for example, I give the example of the SCZ uh, uh, instances of SCJs where you could actually you know uh, uh, collude with the government and and have SEZs uh, for specific purpose of development of uh, say textile uh, uh, industry kind of getting open and where you would make sure that freedom of association. Uh, laws do not come into the SEJs. you know, it is a very uh, specific case being in Bangladesh where there is the SEJ laws in that country uh, and there are SEJs specifically for textile industry and they do not uh, allow for freedom of association to be there or trade unions uh, to practice there and things like that. Uh, so the CSOs really then allowed for, um, uh, uh, for, for breaking that kind of predictable path and for collaboration with uh, not only, uh, you know, uh, other stakeholders, including market players, but also, you know, taking up issues directly to the brands or the buyers or taking up issues to the consumers. And, you know, what very you know closely followed and, and as this kind of effort started coming in, uh, obviously, uh, uh, the, the rights uh, movements in the Western countries, uh, uh, you know, became aware of this and took up some of these causes you know i think about the fair trade movements uh, over the 90s and 2000s and and specifically if we are talking about the fashion industry uh, you have you know th- things like you know fashion revolution or clean clothes campaign and all of these kind of sprung to uh, life from the platform that was provided by these uh, workers association or civil society of nations in the south who were bringing up these issues and articulating their uh, the, the the human rights abuse and uh, and often what uh, as i said i think at the core of it is the is the worker himself or herself uh, right and then they being aware and, and they finding ways to to to, to articulate their issues and, and 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 communicate that to an outside world now there's this very famous uh, instance of uh, 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 this consumer from a, a fairly r- a well-known uh, UK-based, uh, you know, uh, retail brand, who picked up uh, a jeans uh, from uh, from a high-end store, and uh, when she went home, from the pocket of that you know, freshly packed jeans, she found a small note in which uh, the worker back in China, working, actually, it was a prisoner in China who had written down a message saying that, you know, I am from, you know, this province and, you know, in, in this jail and, you know, we are forced to work for 16 hours every day uh, for manufacturing this and, you know, we don't get enough to eat and, you know, and, and things like that. And then, so it, it really uh, alerts you to these, uh, 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 to, 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 to these possibilities where the workers' voice is finding for a space to reach out and, and appeal to the consumer saying that you know we are working for uh, for your you know uh, for your comforts and things like that but you know please be um, please be conscious of the various rights abuse that we go through uh, you know this, this is very kind of fairly celebrated uh, story of how uh, how this individual worker from a prison in china could really reach out to a consumer in europe and and uh, and and then make that case or, or uh, like as the csos organizations flourished both in the south and then followed by that in the north uh, with uh, uh, with campaigns like the clean clothes campaign or the fashion revolution uh, you know campaign and all they could then take up the, the campaigning and advocacy activity directly to the consumer. So initially, the period there was a, a period of a few years when they tried to lobby with the, with the brands and the companies and and, 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 uh, and and reason with them that you know, you have uh, certain commitments for sustainability, certain commitments for uh, compliance and all that and we have evidence of these not being met. Uh, initially, there was a period of success where the companies listened to these and, and, and started taking corrective action. But over a period of time, many of these companies started colluding with their manufacturers base or or, or side-stepping of some of these press tactics from the from the advocacy NGOs. And then, uh, uh, really, the fight was taken to the market where many of these uh, uh, these uh, advocacy organizations actually started doing consumer campaign and succeeded in making the consumers taking steps towards you know writing letters or or boycotting of products and and, and things like that which then in a way forced the companies uh, to uh, to adopt some of these measures uh, and then over the last decade or so uh, we have also seen that a lot of these uh, you know both the consumer awareness also the issue of, Environmental sustainability, the global climate change challenges have resulted in uh, governments then bringing out legislations which mandate the the companies uh, uh, to ensure human rights due diligence, to ensure uh, sustainability compliance, and many of these are now part of the law uh, in many of the Western countries or EU countries, and then that uh, obviously then makes uh, uh, makes. The ability to leverage those uh, legal provisions uh, uh, to to address an issue of rights abuse, uh, you know, as an additional instrument in the hands of civil society organisations or human rights activists to take uh, that work.
4: Okay, I think um, the example. Like, I mean, there are several examples. I mean, um, one example is. Uh, so the, the Thai network, for example, which, is a, which was founded as a trade union network from unions in the global north and in the global south and was like uh, de- founded in the late seventies. And um like left-wing trade unionists from Europe and North America started working together with trade unionists or genuine trade unionists from uh, especially South Asia and Southeast Asia and also Latin America and so there were these links so these links were already existing because of a common political understanding that trade unionism isn't just about improving working conditions but having like a trade unionism that is about uh, yeah changing society and about transformation of society into a non-capitalist society and so there were these links before so they have they didn't only like pop up when uh when these campaigns started but there were such links existing before and um one could say that they became more and more formal one could argue i mean they're like different strands i mean i don't want to to mix it up i mean if if you look at for example this Thai network this rank and file network um there was a cooperation even before these campaigns and there was a cooperation because you would develop strategies how to build uh, genuine unions in in factories how to be, build a democratic unionism how to build uh, a working class and how what kind of tools you would use to to build organizing um in these factories so there was a cooperation which was rooted like in a political understanding of a democratic trade unionism but then there are of course also other groups i mean um if you look at like advocacy networks like the Clean Clothes Campaign or the Worker Rights Consortium, they also emerged out of the criticism um, of these yeah, exi- existing forms of regulation. So for example, um, the Worker Rights Consortium emerged as a criticism of this um, Fair Labour Association in the United States, which claimed to be a tripartite multi-stakeholder initiative. Um, but, but trade unions and student activists said, hey, this is not enough. We have to develop something differently. So um, sometimes it was the, these, these mechanisms or these campaigns developed out of the criticism or out of uh, the criticism of the limits of existing mechanisms, but then also they um, are based upon existing relations of trade unionists, of workers, of activists, which were there before.
1: As workers' unions and human rights campaigners were figuring out how to increase the power of workers in relation to the other actors in the supply chains, whether there were alternatives to the traditional methods of workers' unions, how workers all along the supply chain could collaborate with each other, and how they could advocate directly with the consumers of the products, the global conversation on business and human rights became more urgent because of some prominent cases of corporate negligence. In February of 2010, A fire in the Garib and Garib sweater factory in Bangladesh took the lives of 21 people, while another fire killed 29 more at the That's It Sportswear factory in December of the same year. In 2012, a fire at the Tasreen garment factory took the lives of 112 people. In the same year, a fire at a factory in Karachi that manufactured jeans for the German textile discount retailer Kik killed more than 250 people. And then in May 2013, the collapse of the Rana Plaza in Dhaka took the lives of more than 1,100 people, including many who made products for Benetton, Primark, Walmart, Gucci, Versace, Mango and other global fashion brands. Someone who has watched these developments at close quarters is Professor Justine Nolan of the University of New South Wales, who has researched corporate responsibility for human rights and modern slavery.
5: Now, if you'd asked me, you know, 20 years ago, whether these laws were likely, um, I probably would have said no. You know, so I think that they're, they're, a real, um, they're a really good step forward. The, the laws at the moment, as, as they're drafted, all of the ones I've mentioned have got shortfalls. They've all got limitations, um, but they are a step forward. But where they've come from is really interesting because they've, they've been driven so solidly um, by sort of examples of corporate irresponsibility where things have gone wrong and also a really strong push by, um, in many instances, civil society and sometimes joined also by labor unions as well. So if you look at the law in France, um, the, the duty of vigilance law in France, this was many, many, many years of activism by some really prominent NGOs in France, but then the Rana Plaza disaster that happened in Bangladesh basically sparked a sort of a reigniting of that discussion in France, and that that gave something for civil society to push uh, push their government with and say, "Look, we've got French companies you know involved in these tragedies. We need to have a way to figure out how to deal with this, what's happening you know abroad The interesting thing
4: is if you look at this campaign, it looks like after the Rana Plaza collapse, all the companies and um, also developmental organizations like the GIZ in Germany, they were like, "Yeah, we are in support of this agreement but um, if you look at it, like there was a campaign for this agreement before. So CCC took up this, Thai took up, unions on the ground took it up. And most companies said, no, we don't think such an agreement is necessary. So just to give an example, like Inditex and H&M, um, the Verdi, the trade union here in Germany, which organizes workers in retail stores of H&M and, and Inditex and the works councils of these companies, they campaigned for their company to sign this agreement. Like years before the Rana Plaza accident, they started campaigning for it. They kept pressure on their uh, companies and H&M and Inditex, they were like, no, we don't want to sign that. There is no need for us to sign it. And also other campaign organizations tried to put pressure on the different retailers. And in the end, and one has to admit it, that only because of this Rana Plaza accident, this, uh, this uh, accord was signed. So even though there was a huge campaign before that, and and interestingly is that most companies, which afterwards said, hey, we support this and we are very much in favor of this, um, weren't so before the Rana Plaza incident with the, uh, yeah, so um, that is one, one campaign, which was like very specific for, the signature of that, um, of that accord, and then also it's interesting why the different, or if different to, interesting to see why the different uh, groups, be it union groups, be it NGO groups, uh, campaigned for that agreement. I mean the unions in our network, on the Thai network, they argued, okay, such an agreement can offer the possibility uh, for unionizing in the factories, because part of that agreement was. To have like health and safety committees in the factories or in the supplier factories, and the unions said, okay, if we can use these health and safety committees as a um, as an entry point into the factories, they can help us organizing on the ground. So therefore, we fight for it. And others said, okay, we have to fight for this agreement because it will improve the building safety greatly. So there was another focus in it. So, but these different groups came together. And fought for uh, this agreement, but only because of and one has to say uh, because of this horrible catastrophe. Um, in the end, pressure was big enough for um, yeah to force the companies to sign it to implement it. Um, yeah. Now another- let stay on that. Just stay yeah. on that. Can you explain
1: how the environment in Europe changed as a result of uh, Rana Plaza? How did the media react to it in terms of pressure on? Uh, corporations here, how were uh, uh, politicians uh, in Europe, uh, you know, talking about businesses from their nations, yeah. operating in, uh, in these uh, supply,
4: supply nations? Yeah. Um, I think it changed a lot in that, that sense. I mean, um, part of the work, be it of trade unions or NGOs or advocacy groups, is to highlight the working conditions in supplier factories and to say, "Hey, this is exploitation. These are like intense forms of labor rights violations, horrible working conditions, overtime, and uh, so all these uh, horrible aspects of working conditions." And this, I mean, this was an intense case. Like, I mean, it wasn't just an accident. I mean, more than one thousand three hundred workers died in uh, that factory collapse and no one could say, oh, we have nothing to do with it because everybody knew, hey, this is because of the sourcing practices of the retail companies or the multinational retailers that that source uh, their garments from, from countries like Bangladesh. And there were a lot of newspaper media coverage um, in the, in the weeks after this incident or after this accident. And so it was, an issue, I mean, it was in newspapers before, there were like articles by journalists about exploitation along supply chains, but uh, like this was something nobody could deny. So I mean, if there is like this ordinary exploitation or smaller accidents, that is like a thing that you will read in in a newspaper and then forget about it, uh, but this is, uh, it was so horrible that no one could say, no, we, there have, nothing have, has to change. So nobody could say we can go on like before. I mean, it was a huge catastrophe. And, and if you look at it, it still is. I mean, there are still workers who suffer from injuries. There are still workers who can't pay for their medical treatment. So there's also nothing that has, that is over in a strict sense. So, and yeah, it, it, it changed, uh, how how media reports about working conditions in the garment industries uh, are. I mean, e- even still today, if there are newspapers about um, the, about supply chain law, newspaper articles about the supply chain laws or about working conditions, it's still a thing. Still journalists say, hey, Rana Plaza. So it's something you don't,
0: don't forget. So uh, yeah, so I think so- some of this happened maybe at at, at an individual level one single cso uh, uh, working in bangladesh got support from some donor agency that donor agency put them in touch with some advocacy organization and like that so initial cases were kind of uh, organic and individual in nature but over a period of time these platforms so as the scale of abuse as the scale of the rights violation uh started coming in it is really the the rights organization based in the uh, based in western countries started getting involved so human rights watch come out uh, came out with reports or you know uh, you have the the likes of uh, amnesty bringing out uh, reports or, or doing studies and publishing publishing their uh, research studies and things like that which then led to creation of these kind of platforms. So, so when I probably jumped from the local CSOs to these uh, you know, platforms like Fashion Revolution or Clean Clothes Campaign and things like that uh, uh, fast, but uh, these, these, that connection actually evolved over a period of time and started from some single organic touch point to, to multiple of such touch points to uh, research studies, academic studies. Uh, and, and coming out with reports, these reports getting published, there is public pressure being built and over a period of time, uh, these kind of platforms developing as a, as a, as a coalition of number of uh, agencies coming together.
4: One of the reactions of the companies was to implement these code of conducts and to implement monitoring systems which claim to solve the issue of labor rights violation um, in the producing countries or in the suppliers. And I mean, what, what you can see if you take a close look both at these code of conducts and these monitoring uh, processes or these audit processes that they didn't really change much. So, I mean, to be honest, most of the time they are implemented by the companies to fend off critique, uh, critique of the exploitation and the supply chain, and critique of the, like labor rights violations. Um, but this was like the the effort by these companies to to answer to these campaigns, which were, were mostly directed against these brands, if in garment, for example, and so the. Um, the answer, so to speak, of these companies was to uh, t- come up with these code of conduct, with these um, audit mechanisms, with these monitoring mechanisms. And the, what I think is interesting is that um, also many of these transnational advocacy groups and campaigns, which like started to, to attack the multinational companies um, because of their sourcing practices, because of their... Economic responsibility for the exploitation. They also started to uh, become involved with these initiatives, like forming multi-stakeholder initiatives, for example, like to to make monitoring more robust and to to maybe include even trade unions in the monitoring process.
0: Often, also we have seen that, and you know, often you know, even in places like uh, uh, Clean Clothes Campaign and all, uh, often the differentiation. Yes, among the brands also started coming to the fore in the sense that there were brands which were keen to address some of these issues or root out rights violation from their supply chain (coughs) but they realized that they were not getting the market leverage for taking the positive action without uh, a clear action from the consumer side to recognize to differentiate between uh, you know brands which is taking action versus brands which are uh, which are lax about this. So often we have also seen uh, the brands collaborating with these kind of campaign platforms, uh, and uh, and and some of these campaigns platform really calling out specific brands for not taking action or calling out brands for collab you know, for uh, working on human rights issues and ensuring human rights uh, uh, situation improve in their supply chain and things like that. So you actually have. Uh, uh, you know, fashion revolution coming out with uh, like, you know, disclosure of manufacturing uh, basis of each brands and, and list of uh, manufacturing units and things like that and that transparency then creates that provides added leverage to c- uh, civil society organizations in the base country in the manufacturing countries to actually refer to these uh, these leads or, or disclosures that are coming out and if there are factories which are listed in a, a particular uh, a big brand or an MNC company's uh, supplier base, and they work with the worker community who are part of this manufacturing unit and who are experiencing abuse, they could then write directly to the brand and then say that okay, you know, we have seen through your voluntary disclosure that you have you have buying operations in this country from this factory. We have evidence from this factory that so often. Uh, a lot of these rights abuse uh, got uh, 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 the, uh, the opaque supply chain, multi-layered supply chain between kind of, you know, the brands, the main buyer on behalf of the brands to, uh, to the main exporters in the country, to the subcontractors, there are many layers through which the product flew and often the non-transparency in that product flow. Uh, created opacity in which a lot of this rights abuse would get, uh, would get hidden. So if you spoke to any of the, uh, you know, sustainability, uh, 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 team member of any of the leading brand, they would not deny the fact that okay, there is child labor in, uh, in supply, in, in clothing industry, but they would always side by the fact that no, no. but in our supply chain, we make sure that we have a compliance mechanism that our manufacturers don't use. And then we do this kind of audits or we, we do ex, you know various, uh, you know, to take these, these, these measures to kind of create uh, transparency. And
4: I think part of this was also like the shift from, okay, we have to strengthen the union on the ground, develop the bargaining capacity of the union on the ground or develop the organizing or support the organizing of the union on the ground to include workers and unions in these monitoring processes. And still because you didn't really change the power relations on the ground with these uh, with these strategies, um, only very few things improved. And because of the criticism of the code of conduct that didn't work, the code, the monitoring mechanisms that didn't really work, the multi-stakeholder initiatives which only had limited success, um, I think the debates about the supply chain law emerged out of the failure of the existing transnational um, institutions or mechanisms that were developed. And I mean, what's also part of it is that In the 90s and early 2000s, there were also debates about social clauses in trade agreements, like this idea to include, um, yeah, provisions for uh, labor standards or core labor standards into trade agreements to make sure that they are obeyed and to implement like a robust robust mechanism and that labor laws are, are in place. Uh, in within trade agreements, and also this didn't didn't work out. So I think one has to understand the discussion about um, this human rights due diligence and supply chain laws in the context of the limits of the existing mechanisms that evolved um, as a result of the criticism of the uh, practices of transnational companies and their failure to secure and implement labor rights. In their supply chain. If you
5: look at the example in the UK and Australia of the development of the modern slavery acts, they again were sort of very strongly pushed um, by civil society and sometimes in tandem with business. Like there were certain businesses that came on board and said that you know they wanted to advocate for these laws. We saw that in Australia. But there was this coming together of corporate accountability groups in Australia and labor unions. which were pushing both businesses and governments to have greater disclosure and transparency around their supply chains. But in some cases, we've seen businesses also join in relation relation to that. In Switzerland, for example, um, and Germany, you're seeing really strong pushes from civil society groups um, in Switzerland for a referendum around these issues. So where this is coming from is an understanding that companies, wherever they operate around the world, have to have some measure um, of responsibility, that the days of sort of disassociating yourself from your production processes in Indonesia or Uzbekistan um, or China are gone. And even though that the law hasn't caught up and it's still very difficult to make those companies at the top of the supply chain legally liable for what happens at the bottom of the supply chain, what's being demanded now at least is basically saying, you have to be involved in being more transparent. You have to open up your supply chain. You have to report on the risks that you're seeing. And in some cases, we want you to detail plans to show how you are being vigilant, how you're conducting due diligence in order to avoid this issue. So you're tying campaigns really concretely to laws that are being developed. Um, And, you know, I think that's a really... um, a really strong advance in this area. You know, you've got NGOs and unions who've been campaigning in this area for decades. Um, and so to see, the law is usually slow to catch up to these uh, to these things. And the law in both of these areas, you know, in, in due diligence and, and reporting has still got a long way to go to make it a lot tighter. Um, but we've seen it build on the really valuable efforts, the really valuable campaign efforts of civil society in this area.
0: Now, uh, in, in those cases, really, actually, making sure that every brand uh, disclosed their buying sources disclosed their suppliers main suppliers subcontractors sub suppliers uh, made a difference because then their their uh, compliance uh, uh, responsibility was then not limited only to the main supplier at uh, at the export at the point of export or 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 the entire one supplier but then people started looking at uh, subcontractors or sub-suppliers that goes into tier two and tier three and things like that. Also, I think um, one other uh, strategy I have often seen a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, large brands of companies take is that uh, they would have uh, they would uh, have an active CSR wing, a corporate social responsibility wing, right, and. While the company is not taking uh, uh, action against the structural issues involved in the supply chain where there is you know, human rights abuse or, or, or there is you know, non-payment of minimum wages among the tier 3, tier 4 uh, suppliers in the supply chain, they don't act very strongly against that in a way they almost uh, uh, let their, uh, their suppliers leverage whatever, uh, you know, leverage they could have uh, uh, through OPEC uh, supply chain to, to make sure that they can supply them cheap material and then once they have profited a lot from that they would apportion 2%, 3%, 5% of that profits into some kind of a sustainability program or a CSR program which would look at, you know, issues of, uh, you know, gender-based violence in Uh, in X community or invest in uh, some clean air campaign somewhere and leverage the propaganda value of of those CSR investments to create an image of being a very clean and very ethical company Uh, and often this has also been called out and and, and the the CSR foundations or, or, uh, or foundations set up by these brands have then been investigated also by advocacy agencies and, and the kind of investments they, that they make in uh, these various developmental programs versus uh, the structural problems or issues that are, uh, that are there as part of the supply chain of the core business uh, has also been kind of uh, highlighted and, 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 and shared and 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 transparency to the last mile in the supply chain of the last person uh, um, often for example uh, in the textile sector we see that uh, you know as i said you know there are different tires of manufacturing the tire one manufacturer uh, is the main is the contracted party by the brand uh, but the entire one manufacturer will probably do only about 20 or 30 percent of the manufacturing in their own uh, premises and would outsource the rest uh, to the tire 2 supplier, tire 3 supplier and through a, uh, through a series of this kind of sub, subcontracting or supplier arrangement, the work actually finally lands up in uh, even individual household based workers and home based workers uh, working in his or her home uh, and then and, and stitching and then and, and, or, or, or adding value to the product uh, product line and then supplying it back. And there is simply no. Uh, uh, no mapping or no uh, no compliance effort to ensure that at that last mile uh, there are uh, you know, checks and balances uh, put in place to ensure uh, the working condition issues, wage issues or, or rights abuse issues. Uh, you know, you have civil society organizations like uh, SEVA uh, or SAVE who uh who have really started creating association of home-based workers. Uh, so you have Seva Bharat, which is a sister organization of Seva, who works in Delhi and Sierra region. They have uh, created home workers association or home workers union. These unions have then taken up the dialogue with uh, you know, with specific brands and especially again because of being located in Delhi, probably they have the leverage of being able to reach out to uh, some of the brands, uh, representative offices in Gurgaon, you know, they have sustainability uh, staff there. Uh, so uh, and uh, over a period of time, people like Seva have been able to collaborate with like-minded organisations. Uh, of Home Workers Association across South Asia, so uh, okay, I think this is another kind of issue that uh, also came to the fore is that once the level of awareness, level of uh, kind of uh, organization against rights abuse or, or or you know human rights activists became strong in one particular geography, the, the leverage of globalization uh, you know, how the brands would uh, would use that is to simply shift their production base. So if suppose, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, rights uh, based uh, activists, you know, doing work, say in Tirupur in Tamil Nadu or Delhi and Sir region in India, they would shift from India to Bangladesh. Suppose in Bangladesh, you know, incidences like you know, what happened in Rana Plaza in 2013 because of the fire hazard and, and those things became. More uh, uh, clearer and 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 getting a lot of highlights, they would shift their base from Bangladesh to Cambodia or to Myanmar or you know uh, uh, sweatshops in China became uh, very prominent in various uh, rights activist literature. They would shift base from China to Vietnam and things like that. So, so it also then became important that human rights activists also needed to collaborate across the region. Uh, so one such example is as I said, so Seva started organizing women's association and, and, and creating home workers association. Then they saw that there is a need to collaborate across the country. So uh, you have Seva Bharat, which, which which created nation, a national level forum for human rights organization, uh, uh, for home workers organization. And that uh, o- o- over a period of time that has culminated in now an organization called Home Net South Asia, which is uh, an organization of, uh, or a federation of home workers' organizations across all the eight South Asian countries, including India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, uh, uh, and, and all of them come together at a South Asia level forum uh, to look at, uh, you know, w- w- what kind of issues or challenges that the home workers. In their respective countries are facing, and how collectively they can take the voice. And uh, over a period of time, this has resulted in uh, organisations like uh, WeGo emerging in in internationally, and WeGo really supporting such movements like HomeNet in South Asia. There is now HomeNet in Africa. There is HomeNet Latin America, who uh, who are again collaborating. Uh, or who are creating this kind of regional associations and and doing a lot of research activities bringing out the issues and challenges of their workers to the fore uh, which is getting compared across the regions and then at an international level places people like we go uh, are able to then take it up uh, to the headquarters of the brands and, 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 and engaging in a dialogue process so uh, it's, it's not that we have still found the solution or or, or, or this process has not been easy, neither has it been uh, most effective so far. But, but I think as, uh, as uh, technology has improved, as uh, communication has improved, even the rights activists have started using technology, using collaborative uh, spaces to create associations, to, create, to reach out to their peers in other countries, their peers in western uh, economies. To create kind of collaborative platforms and, 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 and highlight their issues.
1: You are listening to Rakesh Sukar on the Nagrik podcast. I am Aju John, and on this podcast, we learn together to become better at participating in public life. Previously on the Nagrik Podcast, we had learned together about the struggle to save the Nyamgari Hills, the Chipko movement and the work of providing legal services to the survivors of communal violence. This podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms. All you have to do is to go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and search for Nagrik Podcasts. And if you find our feed, you can find these older episodes as well. Through the several years of campaigning and advocacy, workers groups and international civil society organizations had to confront a basic question. Given the drawbacks of national and international legal systems and of voluntary corporate codes, what tools could actually improve the conditions of work in global supply chains? The first major landmark in the institutional response to that question was the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights. The first voice that you will hear now is that of Professor Justine Nolan, whom we have already listened to earlier in this episode. The second voice is that of Christian Schliemann, a senior legal advisor at the European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin.
5: The, the, UN, the UN Guiding Principles was sort of preceded by a lot of advocacy, many years of advocacy. They didn't come out of nowhere. And prior to you know, the, the UN Guiding Principles being released in 2011, Um, you know, you can date back the business and human rights movement for for a very long time, but very seriously from the 1970s. And and during the 1970s, there was this growing sense of wanting to hold companies responsible somehow for what was happening, um, particularly the companies at the top of a supply chain, um, because it was increasingly being realised that the way companies were working around the world um, was this sort of diversified and very disparate supply chain. So in the 1970s, the 1980s, and continuing through as globalisation gathered force, um, companies started to source and move their production lines offshore. Um, you, know, in, in, you know, some years ago, you had a company like Levi's who had actually owned and operated factories in the United States. Um, and in the 80s and 90s, um, those big brand companies started very much so to move to other countries. So there was a long sort of sense of frustration, perhaps, um, and a lack of accountability where companies weren't being held to account for what was happening at the bottom of their supply chains. And these campaigns were using things like you know, media, you know, traditional media at that stage, well before the days of social media, um, boycott campaigns, um, sometimes lobbying the companies directly, And then sort of starting in the 1990s, um, an increasingly use of litigation, like the US Alien Tort Statute. Um, And all of this sort of culminated in discussions at the UN, um, where there was something called the UN norms, which preceded the UN Guiding Principles. And that was a, a draft in a way which was sort of proposing that both governments and companies had some comparable responsibilities and duties in relation to human rights. Um, already in 2003, there were
6: initial efforts to actually regulate uh, the activities of business at the UN level with uh, something that was called back then the draft norms. Um, they never really made the light of uh, the day, but since then, there's kind of an ongoing discussion on the international level how to frame basically the activities of such corporations and how to make sure that they respect human rights in their kind of business activities. I think a milestone generally that needs to be mentioned when it comes to the development of this area of law and also kind of yeah, of concern to the general public um, is the Protect, Respect and Remedy framework that was uh, developed by Professor John Ruggie um, if I'm not mistaken around 2008 and that then culminated in the adoption of the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights in 2011. So that was for the first time that basically all stakeholders involved, both businesses, governments, but also civil society, somehow agreed on a common framework uh, on how business should act. Um, Clearly, back then, um, everyone um, was on the same page that this is not kind of a binding treaty that was adopted, but uh, something like a restatement of already existing laws, um combined with some progressive elements. Um within these guiding principles, you had then the responsibilities of the governments to actually regulate the behavior, but you also have the second pillar, um uh, kind of the respect pillar, that really addressed the companies and asked them to respect human rights and um require that they, let's say, institute um something which is called due diligence, meaning that whenever they Um, engage in a certain activity, they have to assess the risks of human rights violations, potential and actual risks. Um, And once they have done that, they really have to take the appropriate measures to address them. Um, So, this is very abstract because it is supposed to cover all business entities, but definitely it also applies to the case of purchaser responsibility, because it would mean that a buyer let's say in Europe, in Germany, in Spain, um, who regularly sources from a factory in another country that produces, let's assume, textile um, produce, um, they would have to make sure that kind of working conditions in the factory um, are so as not to endanger kind of life and physical integrity of the people and that uh, general workers' rights according to the ILO norms, are respected, and if they realize that this is not the case, they would have to take the appropriate measures in order to improve this and avoid further violations. Um, After the guiding principles were adopted in 2011, we also saw a change to the so-called OECD guidelines um, for multinational enterprises, who then also kind of included a way more concrete chapter on human rights obligations that really mirrors the development on the level of the United Nations. Um, so we have these two, let's say, global soft law standards that really have influenced the whole debate about this
5: issue. And the appointment of the UN Special Representative in 2005, and then the ultimate release of the UN Guiding Principles in 2011, was a consensus building exercise to sort of try and bring everybody to the table and say, okay, let's try and set some, some level playing field for what standards we agree um, should apply here. And where that ended up was the notion that, you know, you've got these three pillars with governments having a duty to protect, companies having a responsibility to respect, and both having some responsibilities around remedy. But there's somewhat vagueness around the company responsibility to respect because it's not grounded in law. It's really a norm of societal expectation. And what's interesting to watch is how it's developed um, since 2011 and particularly the emphasis and the focus that has been on how we bring supply chains into that. Um, Because what you see mostly is where companies are being held to account through lawsuits. It's companies where there's a parent company and operating through its subsidiary. So there's that direct link, legal link, between a company and its subsidiary. Now, with supply chains, that's way more difficult, right? Because if you have a finishing factory, an assembly factory in Bangladesh, that is putting together clothes for a brand that is retailing in Europe, um, there's no direct legal link between the workers at that chain and then the company that is then distributing the product at the end. And that's not even to mention all the production processes that have gone before that, the picking of cotton um, and the spinning and ginning mills and things like that um, before you get to the, the finishing factory. So the supply chain, liability raises all these complexities, with particularly with legal liability. And what the UN Guiding Principles were trying to do was to basically say, there's lots of different ways companies might be responsible for some harm that are causing. They might be directly causing it, they might be contributing to it, or they might be directly linked to it. And really, supply chain responsibility is coming in through those arms around contribution or direct links. So it might be that a company is sort of setting up its business model or its purchasing practices in a way that incentivizes the use of forced labor, because that makes it cheaper um, in their supply chain. And what the guiding principles now allow us to do in some ways is to say, well, that company, even though it's not directly employing those people, it's not directly causing that harm, they are contributing to the problem or they might be linked to the problem. And so in that way, supply chains and the sort of the idea of how companies have a much broader ambit of responsibility than, you know, they might have strictly in a court in terms of legal liability are being brought within the ambit of the UN guiding principles to say that you have this responsibility to respect human rights. Enforcing it, that's a whole different deal.
6: And then slowly afterwards, there were additional developments taking place on national levels. So there are various countries who then actually engaged in looking into what their companies did when they were uh, doing business outside kind of of, uh, the territorial boundaries. And I think purchaser responsibility is something that was always at the forefront of their minds. So you have kind of developments in the UK uh, with the Modern Slavery Act that is supposed to avoid that modern slavery takes place kind of in production uh, constellations. In the Netherlands, um, you have seen kind of a recent adoption of a law that um, tries to avoid child labor. Um, And there are further developments in other countries. And you see a lot of initiatives currently, um, at least from my perspective, we're more familiar with in Europe, where popular initiatives are demanding from their governments that they actually adopt laws to better regulate business behaviors and this is the case for example in Germany currently but also in Switzerland where at the end of November there will be a popular vote uh, about the draft law that actually regulates this particular aspect and I think the last important development that is currently ongoing um, that needs to be mentioned is um, kind of a treaty drafting process that also takes place at the UN level So since 2015, we have an intergovernmental open-ended working group on a draft treaty on business and human rights. I think right now, while we're speaking, there's actually the sixth uh, session of this working group, again, involving various stakeholders from the business side and also from civil society. Um, Yeah, trying to come to terms and agree on uh, a new treaty that would actually regulate on the international level in a binding manner corporate activities and their respect for human rights.
5: One notable um, conversation that has started since 2014 are discussions around a business and human rights treaty Um, and this was first raised um, sort of some time ago with the, the UN norms that I mentioned earlier which in essence some people saw as a treaty in the early, um, late in the early, in the nineties. But now there are formal discussions underway um, that were originally initiated by a group of countries led by Ecuador and South Africa, um, which is, um, has a formal, you know, open-ended, what they call an open-ended intergovernmental working group where it meets a couple of times a year in the United Nations through the Human Rights Council. And they're they're now on to, their third draft of a Business and Human Rights Treaty. And what we've seen with the latest draft that they are proposed is it's starting to draw a lot more parallels between the wording of the UN Guiding Principles, in particular in relation to the notion how companies might be caught within a treaty and the concept of human rights due diligence, which is set out in the UN Guiding Principles, noting that companies have this responsibility. So the treaty discussions. you know that's that's never a short discussion at the United Nations to draft a treaty. They can go you know for for years and decades. Um, but it's a it's a promising sign um, that we're starting to see a few more countries take active participation in it because these treaty discussions have very much some of the big developed countries have sat outside these treaty discussions and haven't been willing to take part in it. Um, and with the growing interest, particularly in the EU, for new laws around mandatory human rights due diligence, we might see some parallel developments and and greater participation in the discussion um, around the treaty. Alongside that, in terms of the implementation of the UN guiding principles, you also have the UN working group on business and human rights, which is a group of five experts, which do a lot of consultations um, and discussions and and aim to basically clarify what the guiding principles mean, how they can be most effectively implemented and also get involved in doing sort of um, in-depth country investigations on, on how they're working. So there is a lot of, um, you know, so if you look back um, 20 years, you know, these discussions weren't happening at the United, really at a, in a serious way at the United Nations. And now business and human rights is very much mainstreamed um, within the UN. Um, you know, effective enforcement um, and, and getting remedy for problems that are occurring are still a long way away. But the discussions are are much more serious at that sort of institutional level than they have been uh, in the past.
1: From the non-binding principles of the UNGPs to binding requirements under national laws. At the time of recording this podcast, there is still no consensus in Germany about the extent to which the proposed supply chain law should compel corporations to disclose and take preventive measures regarding human rights and environmental violations in their supply chains.
6: Yeah, so currently the campaign for for the Lisa Kettengesetz um, logically wants to get this adopted by the German parliament. Um, So one of the biggest tasks is um, to find out what are the uh, what kind of majorities can be built in order to have a final majority to say yes to such a law, um, and that means to seek those uh, seek allies in those parties that have all already let's say publicly um, expressed uh, to be in favour of such a law um and to work with those parliamentarians and to spread the news and organize yeah let's say information exchange with other parliamentarians so that they are also influenced
1: the discussions in switzerland however are at a somewhat more advanced stage mostly because of the referendum procedure
6: once it was put on the table actually the political actors were forced to deal with it and to respond to it um still you can see through the process that has taken place since the initial, let's say, release of the popular initiative, um, that it was very difficult to agree on, yeah, or to come up with a mutually agreed compromise then with the political actors. So all the proposals that were put forward um, by the institutional counterparts that had to react to it never really found the acceptance either um, in the political sphere or at the end from the civil society who uh, published the initial proposal, which is why now after I think more or less two years um, all counter and amended proposals have been defeated and they are back to the initial proposal that was put on the table by the popular initiative and that will be voted upon. and I think now it's really a matter of influencing popular opinion informing everyone of the importance of the subject and making sure that when uh yeah the poll is being taken that people go out and actually yeah give their vote um yeah to decide on this law or not um so w- once you publish such a proposal i mean you have to work basically on all Different levels in order to get it adopted. So it is work with parliamentarians. It's informing them. It's having conversations. It having it's having events, but it's also on a general level informing the public because in the end they are supposed to vote. So there's a lot of information needed that really explains why such a law um, <clears throat> now needs to be adopted because Switzerland has um, various various industry branches that have a lot of kind of negative impacts on human rights elsewhere Um, and you have to make sure that everyone in Switzerland understands this, that there are mining companies, um, that there's the banking sector, that there are huge pesticide companies and that their activities that actually generate income um, for the general public in Switzerland has negative consequences whenever they, not whenever, but sometimes when they act uh, outside of the territory. So I think it's informing the public um it's trying to reach out to policy and decision makers to inform them to seek compromise um yeah in order to reach a mutually accepted version of such a law
1: the supply chain laws that have been proposed in Germany and in Switzerland are the latest solution to the prevalence of human rights violations on transnational supply chains But perhaps the problem is a much deeper one, something that goes to the very nature of these supply chains, which is the massive imbalance in power between the lead firms and the workers who are part of their supply chains at various stages.
5: I mean, what is is missing from many of these conversations uh, most commonly is the voice of workers and their representatives. Um, And that's been a real failing um, as this has gone on uh, for so long. Because what we've seen a lot of the times is companies sort of look for every possible solution or ways of sort of dealing with the problem without actually talking directly to the workers, to those impacted. So the role of labor unions here, is really probably you know is the most significant um, piece of the puzzle that has been missing um, with it. And companies, the more that they seriously and substantively recognize the right of workers to unionize and speak out about their rights, um, then that is the most effective way that we have of moving to a situation where their rights uh, get greater respect than what they currently have. So, you know, even today we see a lot of efforts of trying to increase worker voice through technology, through apps, through through helplines. All of this is useful, um, but also what we need to see is that companies are willing to have workers and and through their representatives direct conversations and have them at the table. And so this applies from, you know, those workers in the factories or in the mines or in the fields, um, but also the companies at the top of the chain. But it's also the case that there are many workplaces, both in the formal and the informal sector, which simply where workers don't, aren't unionised and don't have access to representatives. Um, and so it is this combination of efforts involving um, workers and um, civil society as well to basically try and amplify their voice uh, in relation to this. But if you do try and, you know, if companies try and solve this issue without unions, without worker representatives involved, then I think it would just prolong the problem. Um, And it's sort of almost like sort of working around the issue without going directly to the source. So their role, they're not the only role, but they have a really significant role uh, in this. And I think they're stronger when they're working also with civil society, because there are some places and many workplaces um, where unions are simply not able to or are not operating. And so it's this combination um, of groups that will be effective in this area.
1: Um, j- just a clarification there, um, how do you ensure that, you know, the divergent interests of workers in uh, purchaser nations and the workers in supply nations are sort of, um, you know, um, I, mean, I mean, because these are uh, divergent interests and how do you compromise, uh, how do you bring them together? Or how have these campaigns managed to bring them together?
5: Yeah, I mean, and that's a really difficult question because sometimes when work is outsourced to particularly a developing nation, that means jobs are going um, you know, from a developed nation, um, which has been you know, the process of globalization for the last 30 years where we've seen jobs um, moving around and specialization of jobs um, in particular. I think the commonality between the two is the notion of um, demanding dignity and respect in a workplace, no matter where those jobs are, and that there aren't different standards that apply both onshore and offshore, that if what we are doing is respecting people's dignity, in respecting them to work in fair working conditions, then whether they're working in Sydney or or Shanghai or Dhaka, um, there should be a commonality of understanding what dignity means um, in the workplace. But you're right, I mean, there is tension, there is always going to be tension um, in some places. But if you put the, and then the reality of the way that jobs have been divided is that there are certain specialisation, particularly manual labour and production, that has moved offshore um, that is simply now too expensive in many developed countries. Um, and so those those factory lines are not there anymore. And so this sort of the competition for jobs um, is not always a reality because they're not the same jobs. Um, but there's also that challenge of improving the type of jobs um, and the ability of the worker to transition um, and move up. Uh, no matter what type of job they're doing. But I think it's this question of, for me, it's a basic question of trying to understand that no matter where you are or who you're represented by or not, but that your employer owes you dignity in the workplace. And that's really what we're not seeing in most workplaces.
1: Could the workers of supplier firms bargain directly with lead firms? In June of this year, more than 1,000 workers of the Euro clothing company factory near Bangalore lost their jobs reportedly after H&M canceled their orders amid the coronavirus pandemic.
4: So because of the COVID crisis, an H&M supplier near Bangalore was closed. Um, the company wants to close that uh, supplier. And it is a unionized supplier. Um, and about 1,200 workers are employed in that uh, Factory, And it is a factory that um, produces almost entirely for H&M. So um, the the union that is organizing um, in that supplier, which is actually an affiliate of NTY, um, they started like a legal struggle, but also trade union struggle against the factory closure. So they protested in front of the gate and actually they, they stayed there for like more than two months. So workers like stayed in front of the factory gate and tried to try to try to prevent the company from, um, like from shipping away the machinery and and all the all the fabrics and stuff. So they protested on the ground and fought a legal battle on the ground, and they worked together and and linked their struggle with the retail workers here in Germany, which are organized in the trade union Verdi, and uh, who are the. Uh, works councils in H&M here in Germany and so whenever the struggle like there was a close discussion about what to do how how to put pressure on H&M here in Germany so the idea of this whole campaign was to link the struggle that is going on on the ground um, for like uh, or against the factory closure and against this union busting um because it was clearly union busting effort because it's the only factory that uh, this uh, particular company closes and it is the only unionized factory that the company closes um and like to to link this struggle against the factory closure with um yeah the solidarity of retail workers and trade unionists in the retail sector here in germany and because of that for the first time it was also possible like to to build an alliance between the retail workers here in Germany and their union Verdi, uh, the local union on the ground, and uh, Industrial, the Global Union Federation, which has an agreement or a global framework agreement with H&M about labor rights violation in its supply chain. And because of the local pressure on the ground and the um, pressure by retail workers here in Germany, it was possible to force H&M into negotiations with the local union. So there are still negotiations going on about the reopening of the factory between the local manufacturer, between the local union and between representatives of H&M. And uh, what is interesting about it is that, I mean, companies like H&M or Primark or Inditex or all these transnational companies, they usually say, okay, we take up responsibility, but in a charity framework. So we produce there, we have a responsibility for uh, the workers in our supply chain, but we are not the ones who are actually responsible for the exploitation because we are, they are legally independent suppliers from us. And so they usually do not want to negotiate with the local union, because this would mean um, creating a framework where the principal employer is part of the discussion, and companies like H&M, Primark, blah, 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 they are, they are the principal employer of the garment workers, even though they're legally independent suppliers. And because of that campaign, it was possible to force um, H&M into such, such negotiations. We don't know yet how, how this whole thing will play out because it's still an ongoing struggle, um, but it is a, like a new thing. If, if, you can, if you can phrase it like that, because um, yeah, it's no longer a charity framework, but a framework of direct negotiations between the local union and the direct employer, like the manufacturer and the principal employer. And I think this is an important issue because the problem with many of the supply chain campaigns, be it like this um, supply chain law or these code of conducts, um, they are basically built on the power imbalance along the supply chain. I mean, the, the most uh, powerful actor is the transnational company because they also extract the value, um, or most of the value uh, from the work that is done. And many frameworks build on that power imbalance. They say, hey, H&M, Primark, whoever, you have to take responsibility and put pressure on your supplier in order to end the labor rights violations. So that is basically the logic of all these campaigns. If you can implement it as a mechanism, as a more formal mechanism, or you can implement it um, through direct political pressure, but basically that is most of the time is the logic of these campaigns. And the problem is that if you do not develop a political strategy that actually changes this imbalance, imbalance, then you will never be able to end uh, imperialist exploitation. I mean, on the short run or in a tactical sense, you always build on it because you say h H&M at your supplier, um, there's hap- there something happening and you have to, to do this or that, but you have to build it as a strategy, which is able to, uh, yeah, to change basically the business practices of these transnational companies. So, um which actually brings me also a bit back to this whole supply chain law because in order to to change that imbalance um, this supply chain law would have to tackle the business practices of these transnational companies so the sourcing prices the delivery orders the delivery time uh, who controls the uh, supply chain like these things you would have to address in a supply chain law in order to to actually change working and living conditions along the supply chain and not just uh, like reproduce the logic that the transnational company is the most powerful actor and now please this, please, please powerful actor, use your power for, for, for the better, or for, for the good. But you have to come up with a political strategy and then such a supply chain law might help um, to actually change this uh, power relation this is it, it, this would need like to think differently about such a law and about building relationships of activists and trade unionists along the supply chain, because um, in order to say hey we, I mean, this is like a general criteria such a supply chain law must help us to change power relationships along the supply chain, but this would also mean that like trade unions in the global north and the global south develop a joint strategy and develop joint nego- like joint joint practices, um, which can link to such a supply chain law. I mean, this, if I say, hey, such a law has to to help change power imbalances, then this is in criteria. But you also have to to make it livable. So I mean, to to be honest, this is like a in our trade union work. Uh, this is something we face quite often that we say okay uh, there is a problem with such a supply chain law because if it doesn't change these power imbalances but relies on the power imbalances then it won't help us on the long run but we can't come up with an alternative because this would mean that we actually build trade union struggles along the supply chain and based on that we can say okay a supply chain law which looks like this would help us uh, moving forward these struggles. So the first step would be um, to build trade union struggles along the supply chain based on experiences like the one I just said in this H&M supplier. And based on that, you can argue, okay, a supply chain log should look like this. And um, then you can give criteria like, okay, it should also help us to, to strengthen the union organizing on the ground it should um, help the union to become a local bargaining agent, both with the manufacturer and the principal employer. So these can be criteria because uh, unless the principal employer starts negotiating with the union on the ground, you will never be able to um, yeah, change the business practices of this uh, transnational company.
1: That was the voice of Michael Futura, who argued that the supply chain laws as they are currently conceived do not deal sufficiently with the imbalance in power along supply chains. More than a law or a treaty that fixes liability on the most powerful actor in the chain, he called for new strategies of organizing that can recalibrate relationships among lead firms, supplier firms, and the workers at various stages of supply chains. With that, we also come to the end of this edition of the Nagrik podcast. I'm grateful to the guests, Karupaswamy, Rakesh Subkar, Friedel Hoots-Adams, Michael Futre, Christian Schliemann, and Justine Nolan. I hope that you've been able to learn something new about organizing and campaigning against human rights violations on global supply chains. As I mentioned before, you can visit nagriklearning.com to learn about the laws and legal instruments, strategies and skills that can help you become a little better at advancing the rights of workers on global supply chains.